Finance Insider, a premium edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. Today's host is Senior Editor Chris Sheridan. The current global supply chain is broken. It's leading to a lot of different problems. Unfortunately, it's not going to be fixed. We need a new supply chain entirely. That is one of the main arguments of Jim Rickard's new book. It's titled Sold Out, How Broken Supply Chain, Surging Inflation, and Political Instability Will Sink the Global Economy. So, Jim, it's a pleasure to have you on our show again. Your book, I just finished reading. It was excellent. It's broken into two parts. The first is detailing the longer-term outlook for the global supply chain. Second part, with how this relates to money currencies and the longer-term outlook for inflation. Let's jump into the first part, which really forms one of the main arguments of your book. And again, that's that the current global supply chain and the problems arising from it cannot be fixed. Why is that? Well, just a, as a kind of quick metaphor, imagine you had a very expensive vase and you dropped it and it broke into a thousand pieces. You you can't glue it back together again. You have to get a new vase. So there will always be supply chains. There always have been. I actually start the book in the introduction with a story of a uh, a shipwreck that was discovered in a place called Ulubarun uh, off the coast of Turkey um, from the Bronze Age. Uh, it was about uh, 1100 BC. And it was the uh, discovered by a sponge diver, and it's been excavated uh, since the 1980s when it was found. And in this wreckage, in, in the cargo, they found, it was the best preserved uh, Bronze Age shipwreck that's ever been found. And they found, for example, um, amber, which comes from the vicinity of the Baltic Sea. They found gold, which at the time came from Sudan. They found swords, uh, which were made in uh, kind of present-day Lebanon, uh, Phoenicia at the time. They found oil from Spain and Italy. Um, They found one carving of Queen Nefertiti, which was on its way to Egypt. And the point is, this vessel made a counterclockwise circuit of the Mediterranean Sea, picking up and dropping off cargo along the way. But just based on what I described, you have goods uh, in transit from an area almost to the Arctic Circle, and then south to the equator, and then as far east as present-day Iran, and as far west as Spain, that's an area of 5 million square miles. So that, that was a supply, you know, Bronze Age supply chain. Nothing new about supply chains. But what is new, uh, beginning in uh, about 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, which was the beginning of uh, a new age of globalization, you had uh, supply chain science. Uh, so again, supply chain is not new, but supply chain science was new. Uh, it was a combination of computing power, uh, artificial intelligence, new algorithms, new engineering methods, and new sources of data that could be applied to make the supply chain more and more efficient, which they did. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, Walmart and Amazon are among the leaders of this, but many, many other firms were involved. And there was this relentless effort just to make things more efficient, uh, which basically reduced costs. That was the bottom line. When you reduce costs, it's either good for consumers because they can buy more and you, you sell more, or uh, would increase your margins if you could um, uh, you know, maintain pricing but lower your costs. Obviously, you could add that uh, profit yourself. So, um, and this was just you know good, obviously, because it resulted in lower prices or higher profits or both. But it was pushed to extremes. So, I mean, the way you did it, if you had seven suppliers, let's say, you know, experts might say, well, cut that down to three, you know, and you can give them bigger orders and get lower prices. Or if you had five transportation lanes coming into five different ports, maybe cut that down to two, concentrate your shipments in a certain area. Um, on and on, there was a, 
you know, we all know about just-in-time inventory. There's something called cross-stocking. I mean, what's that? That's where a truck arrives at a warehouse, and instead of putting the goods in the warehouse, you just move it to another truck, which then leaves and goes to the final destination. So the, the goods never end up in the warehouse. And that and many other techniques were used. It did lower costs. The problem was that it had hidden costs that were never taken into account. And the hidden costs were a much greater uh, frailty. This whole thing, a complex dynamic system, was much more vulnerable to breakdown. It only took a small failure somewhere in that chain I just described, uh, and these chains go on and on, to, to break down the whole thing. And that's what has happened uh, really over the course of the last uh, three or four years. So it doesn't mean the supply chains go away. They'll come back. But they're going to be different. So I, I actually call um, the first uh, period, 1989 to 2019, a supply chain 1.0. That's pretty much what I just described. Supply chain 2.0 starts now. It'll go, you know, some some distance into the future. You know, 30, 40, 50 years. Who knows? But it'll be different. It won't. It'll be like buying the new vase. It won't be the old thing that broke, put back together, because you really can't do that with these complex dynamic systems. When they break down, they're, they're gone. You have to rebuild them pretty much from the ground up. So the new supply chain, what I call supply chain 2.0, it, it'll still, the you know, supply chains will still exist. They'll be outsourcing, there'll be transportation lanes, there'll be trade, et cetera. But it'll be like our club um, the, of friendly nations. It goes by different names. Janet Yellen has referred to it as uh, friendshoring. You know, we all know the phrase offshoring. So she says friendshoring will have uh, trading lines with our friends. Um, Emmanuel Macron calls it a, a consortium of nations. I refer to it in my book as a college of nations, uh, basically a collegial uh, <clears throat> group of nations. And they'll be like-minded in the sense that there'll be liberal democracies and um with respect for the rule of law, et cetera. And they'll trade with each other. So it'll be the United States, certainly, but um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Japan, Western Europe, probably India and some other countries. And, and they'll trade with each other. The people who are, are the countries on the outs that'll have to construct their own supply chains will be places like China um, and maybe some of the Central Asian republics and some others. They'll be kind of cut out of the system. They'll figure something out, but it's going to be a lot more difficult for them. So, um, and this will raise costs a little bit. Um, you know, labor costs might not be quite as low, um, you know, et cetera, but uh, it'll be worth it because those, the, the extra you pay, you'll be getting a lot more value. You'll be getting a more robust, more resilient uh, form of supply chain. You won't be helping some of these um, dictatorships that don't respect human rights and are engaged in genocide and concentration camps and thought control and so forth. So look, uh, look for a new world. I, uh, in that sense, I, I talked to a guy who, uh, you know, <clears throat> the supply chain science and management and evolution I just described obviously involved you know, millions of people all over the world working on their bits of it. But if you had to pick one guy who really drove the science and the technology I described, it would be this... Uh, individual I spoke to. And what he said to me was, uh, he said, Jim, you have to understand it took us 30 years to build this. It took about three years to blow it up. It's not going to come back overnight. It's going to take five or 10 years or even longer to rebuild it. So <clears throat> along these new lines. So right now we're kind of in an in-between stage where the old supply chain is gone. It's been too badly disrupted. A new supply chain is coming. It'll be different for the, along the lines I mentioned, which is it'll be 
you know, friendly nations trading with each other, but it's going to take time to do. So we're, a, we're kind of muddling through a, an in-between stage right now. So let's talk about what you say is a once-in-a-century decoupling of the world's two largest economies. That's the U.S. and China. As you said, you know, we built this prior global supply chain that's having all the problems today over the past 30 years. And now we're seeing that unravel for this supply chain 2.0, as you put it. Tell us about, I mean, just the difficulties that are going to come from seeing that decoupling between the two world largest economies. Sure, that's a great question. And many... Uh Many, many examples. The first thing, you know, the two biggest economies, as you mentioned, the United States and China, are decoupling. But this is mutual. This is not just the United States separating itself from China. And we are doing that. We've seen recently the Biden administration impose very strict uh, export controls on uh, technology, particularly in the advanced semiconductor space. You know, the getting down to five nanometers and three nanometers in um, in the semiconductor measurements. Um, it, it, we're, we're cutting China off from even an early prospect of having that kind of technology, but a lot else besides um, the military uh, cutting off theft of intellectual property um, and other uh, other fields. Now, but China is equally determined to decouple. Uh, you know, uh, Chairman Xi is telling the Chinese people, you know, we need to be more self-reliant. We need to develop our industries, our semiconductor capacity. Let's not rely on the United States, et cetera. So this is going on in both countries. Both countries kind of agree on it. Um, we're not quite at war, but maybe we are in a financial and economic war of some sort. But um, it, it's going to continue. And as I say, it will evolve into what I describe, which, which I, I call, again, a college of nations that will trade, uh, trade with each other. But, uh, but other examples, uh, again, a lot more concrete. So we see um, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing uh, Company, the world's largest semiconductor company, but also the best. They, they have the most advanced technology uh, in Taiwan. They recently announced a $10 billion plus investment in a new fab. It's a, a semiconductor fabrication plant in Texas. Uh, well, why is Taiwan Semiconductor moving to Texas? Not the whole company, of course, but this new state-of-the-art plant. Well, and, and by the way, Intel announced something similar. They are a U.S. company, but they can put their plants anywhere they like and pretty much. And they're doing a $10 billion plus fab plant in, I believe it's in Oregon. So why all this investment in the United States? Well, um, who knows what China's going to do in Taiwan? I'm not predicting an imminent invasion, but one certainly cannot rule that out. It's certainly a real danger. Uh, but the U.S. military has a plan called the, the broken nest theory. And what the broken nest theory comes from a Chinese proverb that says, uh, if the nest is broken, how can the eggs survive? Um, and the point is, if China invades Taiwan, I don't know exactly what the plan is to have the Seventh Fleet intervene there. But at a minimum, we're going to destroy all the all of Taiwan Semiconductor's capacity in Taiwan. It'll be it'll be blown up or burnt down, or it'll, it'll just be destroyed because we don't want that to fall in Chinese hands. By the way, there's a deterrent aspect there. If you're the Chinese. And that's part of your goal. Why would you invade if it's not going to be there when you get there? But they might have other reasons. But Taiwan Semiconductor knows this. And so they're looking at their corporate survival and building plants in the United States. So um, there's an example of uh, that. That's more than French shoring. That is onshoring, where you bring it onshore in the United States. And there's a lot else along those lines uh, going on. So um, these are uh, real, um, you know, very practical, real-world examples we can go back a little further, uh, well, not too far, but back to 2018. And and, and by the way, um, 
you know, people say, well, why did the supply chain break down? Uh, you know, it's been going strong for 30 years or, you know, a couple thousand years in some respects. Why all of a sudden did it break down? And everyone looks at COVID and that, and that was part of it. And the war in Ukraine, and that's another big part of it. But that's not where it started. Uh, it's very clear from the data that it, the supply chain breakdown started in 2018 when Trump put tariffs on China. Now, I don't want to get into the tariff debate. I happen to think the tariffs were a good idea and overdue. But whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, that's where the breakdown started. Because if you recall what Trump did, he put tariffs on Chinese imports of started with appliances, you know, washing machines and dishwashers and things like that, that the Chinese made, but then included solar panels and just went to a longer and longer list of goods. Well, China retaliated. And one of the big things is uh, where, where they made a move is the two biggest soybean producers in the world are the United States and Brazil, soybean exporters. China needs the soybeans because they don't have enough food. And they had been buying them from the United States just as a way to make the balance of trade a little less uh, horrendous than it was. We, of course, we were Americans were buying uh, enormous amounts of goods from China. So China said, well, at least we'll buy soybeans from the U.S. and that'll even up the balance of trade a little bit. Well, China suddenly shifted their soybean orders from the U.S. to Brazil. Well, that's more than a phone call. I mean, it's more than just sending a purchase order to you know a, a different part of the world. You've got you know cargo vessels. You've got uh, truckers who have to get the soybeans to the ports. You've got port logistics. All of a sudden, you're not shipping from uh, you know Port of Los Angeles to Ningbo near Shanghai. You're shipping from um, you know you know Rio de Janeiro or Recife or other ports in Brazil to um, or even Argentina to uh, to China. Uh, and the people involved in this, whether they're shippers or truck drivers or farmers, et cetera, they don't like they don't do this for six months. They want five year contracts. They want they want to know that if they're going to rejig the entire you know, transportation lane, that it'll be for, you know, as I say, for for a long term. And they did. <clears throat> so that that shows up in shipping data. I was able to look to find the data to, to prove that it's a huge logistical uh, uh, hurdle. To jump over. Meanwhile, the U.S. are sitting there with all these soybeans. So what did we do? We started selling them to the Netherlands because Netherlands and Europe <clears throat> needed the soybeans. So again, same thing. So in terms of logistics and transportation lanes and vessels and all that. So you've just like blown up the global uh, soybean cargo trucking import export business and and changed everything after you know twenty years of development. Well, you can do it, but at a very high cost, and uh, a lot else gets disrupted um, along the way. So these are some of the, you know, whether semiconductors, soybeans, or, or a lot else besides, these are some of the tangible um, uh, results and evidence of the supply chain crackup that we've just seen. So you write that the breakdown of the global supply chain is a massive real-time case study in the failure of complex systems. And as you just mentioned, one of the hidden costs of pursuing efficiency as far as you can push that was making our global supply chain in its present state extremely vulnerable. And so that was the seeds of the current breakdown. It didn't matter what necessarily the cause was. The cause was embedded within the system itself. And then, of course, we did see, like you pointed out, the U.S. trade wars, which probably started that breakdown, COVID, and a number of other things that you identify. One of the big ones, of course, that does bear a lot of attention is, again, this once-in-a-century decoupling of the world's two largest economies, 
it sounds like from what you write, you believe that that is going to continue. And we also have another problem when it comes to energy. So this is another major factor, again, that's leading us from supply chain 1.0 to supply chain 2.0, as you write. Can you explain the role of energy in this? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, energy is about the most important element in the supply chain. Now, we all think of it, okay, we need gas for our cars. We need heating oil for our homes. You know, you run factories on natural gas, you know, et cetera, as the case may be. But then when you, when you think a little further, everything revolves around energy. It runs assembly lines. It runs trucks, airplanes, cargo vessels, uh, trains. Um, so everything runs on energy, uses energy, has an energy input, whether it's manufacturing, transportation, mining, and, and so forth. So it, it's uh, it's hard to think of, of any commodity or any facet of the economy that's more important. So that's, that's number one. Number two, um, the Biden administration came in. What did they do? They declared war on oil and natural gas. This was in uh, you know 2021, uh, literally the day Biden was sworn in. He was sitting or within a few days. Uh, at the most, he was sitting in the Oval Office with a stack of executive orders. And by the way, they didn't write those overnight. They had all been, you know, orders in waiting, just waiting for a progressive Democrat to, to be in the Oval Office. Shut down the Keystone XL pipeline, shut down uh, new leases for oil and natural gas on federal lands, uh, handicapped the fracking industry, you know, and so on. And, and a lot more, uh, a lot more besides. Um, and this was before the war in Ukraine. So we were already... Um, damaging our own, our, our domestic oil and natural gas industries at a time when the economy was growing and needed more energy than ever. And for that matter, the world economy was growing. Then, of course, here comes the war in Ukraine. Um, and, um, uh, you know, Russia, of course, was uh, quick to use energy as a weapon, but that came as no surprise. You know, we're, we're talking about my new book, Sold Out, uh, which is, is available for, uh, for pre-order on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and other outlets right now, but go back to 2011. So 11 years ago, I wrote a book called Currency Wars. And in the, uh, there somewhere around page 250, give or take, I had a whole section on Ukraine, Russia, and natural gas and how natural gas would be weaponized. So as I said, we saw this coming over 10 years ago, but why uh, people like, you know, the leadership of Germany weren't more attentive, I, I don't know. I do want to say real quick, Currency Wars was an excellent book. So if you haven't read Currency Wars, I would recommend that in addition to Sold Out, of course. So just wanted to give that a quick quick plug. Thank you. That's very, uh, very, very nice. Uh, but uh, as I say, it was always in the cards. Why would you, um, you know, basically provoke Russia into a war, to an invasion of Ukraine, and then escalate that through economic sanctions? I, uh, I actually lecture on this. I lecture on financial warfare at the U.S. Army War College down in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And I, it, it's a mixed group. It's It's hosted by the U.S. Army War College, but we get officers, the kind of mid-career officers from uh, you know, lieutenant colonels, colonels, Navy commanders, um, you know, fighter pilots, and some civilian State Department, CIA. And it's a small group, about 12 or 13 uh, uh, participants, and we do a seminar style. But these, are, these have been identified and tracked as the future big brains. So the future four-star generals, policymakers, national security advisors, and so forth. And again, I teach the uh, module on financial warfare, but I did this in um, early April, not long after the war started. And I said to the group, um, I said, the U.S. financial sanctions are going to fail. Uh, they're going to be worse than a failure, which is they're going to hurt us far more than they ever hurt Russia. And we're, we're in the process of pursuing policies which damage the United States and hurt our national security. 
And that's exactly the way it's played out. And I could have added the same for Western Europe, but Western Europe is just tagging along with whatever the United States wanted to do. But uh, we've all been damaged by it. But, uh, you know, in Germany, 45% of their energy is natural gas from Russia. How do you substitute that? Well, you, well, you can't. And now um, Putin no longer has an option to supply more natural gas to Germany, at least in the short run, because the pipeline's been blown up. And likewise, Germany loses the option to make amends with Russia because there's nothing in it for them that they're not getting the gas. So we've, um, as I say, we've foreclosed that option. This stuff is not easy to substitute. In fact, I'll go further and say it's almost impossible. You know, I read an article recently. It said, uh, you know, Europe, uh, European Union strikes a major natural gas deal with Gutter and will supply natural gas needs. I said, yeah. And, and you read the fine print, read the whole story. It says uh, it'll come on stream in 2026. Well, uh, basically, Gutter was using European money to develop natural gas fields in the northern part of Gutter. Yeah, and they'll do a long-term take-or-pay contract with Europe beginning in 2026. But how's Europe going to get through you know, four more years? They're not going to get through four months. Um, and so... Uh, but the other the other point I make is you know the old saying what's what's what happens in Europe doesn't stay in Europe. Uh, if Biden is shipping diesel to Europe to help with and and natural gas to Europe to help with their energy shortages, what's that going to do? I live I live in New England. We we depend on natural gas and cold weather. It's coming. Uh, so what's that going to do to U.S. natural gas prices? Diesel, um, I'm sure you've heard, is uh, we're down to about a 25 day supply in the United States. Normal. Supplies are about 30 days and people go, oh, what's the big deal if it's 25 instead of 30? Well, the big deal is you can't replenish it. It's one thing if you can just say, okay, we're down, we're down five days, fill it up, you know, fill her up. In other words, you can't because the constraint is not oil. There's enough oil to go around. The constraint is refining capacity. These are refined products. And so you can't replace this. We may be out of diesel and that'll shut down the economy. That'll make the pandemic panic look like a, a walk in the park. That'll shut down the economy faster than anything other than you know, probably a nuclear war, although Biden's talking about that also. So um, so we're looking at we and Europe, United States and Europe, and by extension, Canada and others are looking at um, an economic shutdown, uh, you know, comparable to the pandemic, except not one that will go away so quickly. So again, you know, what you're talking about, these are longer term structural factors. They're deeply embedded that are not going to be easily fixed overnight. I mean, whether or not it's us building more refineries, alleviating the supply shortages, the process of going from supply chain 1.0, which cannot be fixed. We can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, right? I mean, it's broken and we need to build the new supply chain. We're in the process of doing that. It's going to take years as you say, and you even talk about in chapter two of your book, I think this is really interesting about how the biggest loser in this process of going from 1.0 to 2.0 is going to be China. The biggest winner will be the U.S. And I'll save that for our readers to um, where you get into that in, in detail. I want to jump to, as we still have you, into another part, which I think is really important. And this is the, in the second part of your book in chapter four where you talk about the 1970s, because a lot of people are looking at the inflation that we see today, 40-year high, going back to the 70s, and say that you know there's a lot of parallels here. However, I want to uh, put it in context with something that you write, and I want to quote you. You say, in the 70s, we experienced a supply shock in one commodity, oil, and from one single region, the Middle East. However, today, they are coming from many commodities and many different sources, affecting everything from food, labor, and energy the world over. So I think that's just a, 
that was a key part of your, your book, putting all of this into context. And I also make the point that uh, inflation and uh, in chapter four is about inflation. My editor, when we outlined the book, you know, chapter one is you know, mostly anecdotal. It's like all the stories we've all heard about how the supply chain is breaking down. Chapter two says why. Why is the supply chain breaking down? When did it start? What started it said? And we talked a little bit about that. Chapter three looks into the future and says it's gone. It will come back, but in a new form. And what will that new form look like? But then chapter four is on inflation. When I talked to my editor, we were kind of outlining the book last fall. He said, well, Jim, we have to have a chapter on inflation. I said, of course we do. And the supply chain is causing the inflation. But then I went further and I said, I want a chapter on deflation also. And that's chapter five. And yeah, there's no doubt about the inflation. It's in front of us. I put gas in my car. I go to the store. We all see it. Um, but what people really don't see coming, and this may happen a lot sooner than people expect, once we get through this inflation episode, we may be in for serious disinflation and deflation. And here's why. Inflation can arise from two sources. One is the supply side. It's called cost push inflation. Um, it's you know commodity embargoes, commodity shortages, the kind of thing we've been talking about, trade barriers, war in Ukraine, COVID shutdowns. Um, whether it's energy or food or manufactured goods or Port of Los Angeles is jammed or there are 80,000 trucker shortage. We, we have people say, why don't you get more truckers and move the stuff around? You can't. We're, we're short about 80,000 truckers. That's what the American Trucking Association uh, uh, estimates. The Fed can't do anything about the supply side. The Fed doesn't drill for oil. They don't farm. They don't drive trucks. They don't drive forklifts. They can't do anything. The other kind of inflation is from the demand side. It's called demand pull inflation. It's psychological. Uh, consumers, uh, you know, I'm thinking about buying a refrigerator. I go, well, I better go out and buy it today because if I wait three months, the price is going to go up. And we did have that in the late 70s. You're, you're right. The early 70s were from the, from the supply side, oil. But then the late 70s, the, the, the consumer psychology changed and it took off. Now, here's the difference. When demand pull inflation um, gets a grip and affects behavior, it feeds on itself. It gets worse and worse and worse. And the only solution is to do kind of what Paul Volcker did, which is just crush the economy. But cost push inflation from the supply side tends to be self-negating. And what I mean by that is it actually causes its own demise. So, you know, the old saying, and it's true, you know, the cure for high, high oil prices is high oil prices because- if stuff gets expensive enough, people drive less. Um, they stay home. Uh, they, you know, they substitute, you know, one some goods for another, and they slow down the whole economy. Even if I have to fill up my car, my you know Ford F one fifty pickup truck. I don't have them, by the way, but a lot of people do. Um, and the price has gone from you know seventy dollars to one hundred and forty dollars. Um, I might do that because I have to get to work or use my truck. But um, it means I won't do something else. Uh, not you know, you'll skip a dinner, you'll skip a vacation, you won't buy a new suit, your wife won't buy a new dress, whatever it might be. But that puts the economy into recession, and then prices come down fast. So what we're facing, we're not to the demand pull side yet. That investor, sorry, consumer psychology has not changed. We're on the supply side, cost push inflation, which will slow down itself. But the Fed is is saying that we're going to do it by crushing demand. Well, how much, if the, if the inflation is coming from the supply side, not the demand side, how much do you have to crush demand to actually affect inflation? The answer is completely. You have to 
trash the economy. And that's what they're doing. They, they wouldn't put it that way and they don't see it coming, but that's what's, uh, that is what's coming. So we're going to be in a very severe recession, kind of starting now and getting worse over the course of uh, this winter. Well, if you want to understand how the world currently works, what led us up to the current problems that we're seeing today and what the implications are moving forward in the years ahead, I want to highly recommend that you pick up Jim's latest book. Again, the title of it is Sold Out, How Broken Supply Chains, Surging Inflation, and Political Instability Will Sink the Global Economy. It is an excellent book and will give you the key insights to understand how our world really works and what to prepare for in the years ahead. Jim, it was a pleasure to speak with you on our show. We look forward to having you on in the future. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk